She always says, good job, mom, or good job, Laura. I never hear her say, good job, daddy. I mean, uh, <laughs> if I do A plus B, then I will get C. For instance, if I go to church each Sunday and I say my prayers on Monday, then God will be pleased with my efforts and he will accept me. That is the epitome of ritual. Religious rituals consist of customs that individuals practice in order to feel better about themselves. Only God is never satisfied with ritual. He desires relationship. This relationship involves love and it involves respect. For instance, John Piper talks about if he were to come home on his anniversary with some flowers and hand them to his wife and say, here, I'm supposed to give you something. That's not going to fly. Nevertheless, while husbands give the flowers because they love their wives, I would add they also respect the institution of marriage. That is why we celebrate anniversaries. Marriage is a holy union which does not allow for multiple options. The bride in the Song of Songs says, I am his and he is mine. So it is that God desires love, not ritual, but he does not allow for multiple options either. What I mean by that is there's only one way for you and I to access the presence of God. We cannot set the standards. We cannot come before his holiness on our own terms. In Leviticus 16, verses 1 and 2, I did not read that, but the Lord makes reference to Aaron's sons who did not respect or honor God's holiness, and the consequences were severe. You can go back to Leviticus chapter 10, and you can see where Nadab and Abihu made a strange fire contrary to God's command, and they died physically. We live contrary to God's commands when we try to practice rituals or what we might identify as good works in order to access God's presence. And we will die spiritually. Do not get me wrong. Do not mishear me. We should worship together. It should be important that we gather as the assembly of believers. We should read our Bibles. We should pray consistently. We should minister to the needy. But any of these things absent of Christ would be equal to Nadab and Abihu's strange fire. Paul writes in Ephesians, 2, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, lest anyone boast. And to preview for you what Leviticus 16 is actually all about, listen to the words of Jesus from John 14, verse 6. 
I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There are no other options. There is no other way. Leviticus chapter 16 shows how God cleanses and sanctifies people from every sin and every defilement so that they can have a relationship with him. But Leviticus 16, and you must see this, points us to Christ. God's presence with the nation of Israel first dwelt in the tabernacle, followed by the temple that Solomon would build. In both structures, a large veil separated the people from what was called the Holy of Holies. The only person that the Lord allowed behind that veil into the Holy of Holies was the Jewish high priest. Once per year, on the Day of Atonement, or what the Jewish people call Yom Kippur. It was in order to purify his people. This text is remarkably significant for our understanding how God's word always, always, always points us to our redemption story found only through a love relationship in Jesus Christ. To begin with, Leviticus 16 verses 3 through 5 and Leviticus 16, 12 and 13 outlines the preparation for our purification from sin. Specifically, it details exactly how Aaron must enter into the Holy of Holies. Or to put it differently, it prescribes exactly how Aaron was to gain access into God's presence. No one could behold the mercy seat behind the Ark of the Covenant and live. I should say inside the Ark of the Covenant or on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It is why when entering into the Holy of Holies, the high priest would slaughter a bull for his own sin offering and then fill a censer with coals from the fire burning on the outer altar. Add two handfuls of incense and bring the mixture into the Holy of Holies. A cloud of thick smoke covered the mercy seat and prevented the high priest from looking directly upon the place that symbolized God's most intimate presence. It reminds me of a scene from the film Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Very realistic film. And, and what you see is, is that the Nazis, you know, because of Indiana Jones' work, are able to uncover the Ark of the Covenant, and they take it to a remote spot to open its lid, and uh, Indiana Jones is tied to a pole with his girlfriend Miriam, and even the fictional archaeologist Indiana Jones knows that you cannot look upon the holiness of God on your own and live. So he cries out to Miriam, don't look, no matter what, don't open your eyes. Additionally, the priest was required to clothe himself with linen garments. When the high priest spoke to the people of God, he wore the splendid robes of the office. But when he spoke to God on behalf of the people, he came with no authority. 
He came in supreme humility. Finally, rabbinic tradition stipulated that a seven-day priestly preparation must precede the process of purification. I want you to understand that these preparatory steps foreshadow the coming Messiah. One, we read in Hebrews 9, verse 12, but Christ did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves. He entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. In other words, Jesus did not require a sin offering for himself. Two, in order to speak to the Father on our behalf, Jesus clothed himself in supreme humility by taking on flesh and by coming as a man. And three, Jesus' purification process on our behalf began on Palm Sunday when he rode on a donkey into Jerusalem and it concluded seven days later when the stone was rolled away. If the preparation for our purification points us to Christ, then the provision of our purification from sin reveals the Lamb of God to us all the more. Aaron was required to bring two goats whenever making atonement for the people. In verses 15 through 19, we read that he slaughtered one goat in order to cover the people's sins. This represented their sins being forgiven. Then in verses 20 through 22, we learn about a second goat called the scapegoat. The high priest pronounced the sins of Israel upon this animal before releasing it into the desert. This represented their sins being forgotten. Sins forgiven and sins forgotten. Perhaps the observance of the Day of Atonement is what prompted the psalmist to write Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. The Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Sins forgiven. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east, as from the west, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. Our sins forgotten, sins forgiven, sins forgotten. It is the process that theologians call expiation and propitiation. Lofty theological terms. Expiation is the covering of one's sin by blood. Propitiation is the transference of sin onto an innocent party. I may have used this illustration with you before, but it bears repeating. Imagine, if you will, a young boy riding on his bike and he falls and skins his knee. What will he likely do? He will run to his mommy. And his mommy will then blow on the boo-boo and she will cover the boo-boo with a Band-Aid. That's expiation, covering our sin. But now imagine, if you will, that that 
mother removes the Band-Aid from her little boy's knee and puts the Band-Aid on her knee, and all of a sudden his knee is made clean, and she has taken on the bloody, scraped knee. That is propitiation. I want to read to you a really short story by a man named Walter Wengerin, Jr. The story is called Ragman. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, child. Hush now. I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes by bright, both bright and new, and he was calling in a clear, tenor voice, rags. Ah, the air was foul and the first light filthy to be crossed by such sweet music. Rags, new rags for old. I take your tired rags, rags. Now, this is a wonder, I thought to myself, for the man stood six feet four. His arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a rag man in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the rag man saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing and shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The rag man stopped his cart. Quietly, he walked to the woman, stepping around tin cans, dead toys, and pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face, and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. Rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came up upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty, blood soaked her bandage. A single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this child with pity, and he drew out a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it, and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers, and I gasped at what I saw, for with the bandage with the wound, against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags! Rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work, he asked a man who leaned against the telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him. Do you have a job? Are you crazy, sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat, the cut, the cuff, stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So the ragman said, give me your jacket. 
and I'll give you mine. Such quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket, so did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw, for the ragman's arm stayed in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs. But the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man hunched, wizened, and sick. He took the blanket and wrapped it around himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes and now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old, and sick. Yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next, until he came to its limits. And when he had rushed beyond, I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow. And yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste, perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old ragman went outside the city and came to a landfill. He came to the garbage pits. And then I wanted to help him in what he did, but I hung back hiding. He climbed a hill with tormented labor. He cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He laid down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an army blanket, and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car, and I wailed, and I mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love this ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of him, and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know. How could I know that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and its night too? But then on Sunday morning, I was wakened by a violence, light, pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face. And I blinked, and I looked, and I saw the last and the first wonder of it all. There was the ragman, folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but alive. And besides that, healthy. There was no sign of sorrow nor of age, and all the rags that he had gathered shined now for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head, and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. And I took off all my clothes, and in that place I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, Dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me, and I am a wonder beside him. The ragman. The ragman. The Christ. Something for us to understand from Hebrew culture is that the Day of Atonement had to be celebrated year after year. According to Leviticus 16, verse 30, it was done so as to cleanse the people's sins before the Lord. You had the preparation. You had the provision. But you did not yet have any permanent purification from our sin. A former colleague gave Whitman a book after he was born. It was the Little Golden Book Story Collection. 
It is a book full of great stories. But once Whitman developed an interest in reading, he just wanted to hear one. The Good Humor Man. I would say, how about the pokey little puppy? No, Good Humor Man. How about the Scuffy the Tugboat? No, the Good Humor Man, he would say. We've discovered the same thing with our little girl, Valen. For her, it's not the Good Humor Man. It is Wheels on the Tuck Tuck. We would, we would read, yes, yes, you do. We would read Good Humor Man repeatedly to Whitman. We read Wheels on the Tuck Tuck almost daily to Valen. Doing so provides an accurate illustration of the Aaronic priesthood. Leviticus 16.33 says, This shall be an everlasting statute for you to make atonement for the children of Israel for all their sins once a year. It is why the author of Hebrews writes in chapter 10, verse 11, Every high priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Every year they had to do the same thing. They could never sit down because their work was never done. They had to read over and over and over again the good humor man and wills on the tuk-tuk. Not so with Jesus. The author of Hebrews continues in chapter 10, verse 12, but this man, Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God the Father. The work was done. Catch this. The sin offering on the Day of Atonement had to be taken outside the camp. Hebrews 13 verse 12 explains that Jesus had to go outside the city gate when he was crucified at Calvary. But unlike the blood of goats and bulls, Christ's blood covers our sin permanently. And unlike the scapegoat that took upon itself Israel's sin year after year, Christ took on our sin permanently and then transferred his righteousness to you and me. Come on, y'all. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Wow. Because of all that Christ has done, the author of Hebrews testifies in chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Relationship, not ritual, forgiven and forgotten once and for all. I agree with Pat. That deserves a hallelujah. It is why Christ cried out from Golgotha, it is finished. And when Christ paid the price that our sins deserved, Matthew 27 verse 51 says the veil was torn in two. What does that mean? 
It means you and me have access into the presence of God through Christ. I can come into the presence of God because of Christ. The Lamb of God shed his blood to become our scapegoat so that we can have direct access into the Holy of Holies. Please do not let yourselves be fooled. Do not believe there is some other way. There is not. There is only one way to God the Father. It's through Jesus, Messiah, Lord of all. So repent of your sin and trust Christ and Christ alone to dress you. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me and I am a wonder beside him. The rag man, the rag man. Has he yet put new clothes on you? If not, I invite you today to come, to come and experience the goodness of our Lord. Pray with me. Christ, that you would shed your blood and that you would give me your righteousness so that my sins would be forgiven and forgotten and that I could gain access to the Holy of Holies. Sometimes we just have no words to speak. But we can say, I love you, Jesus. And today, let that be our prayer. That we would say, Jesus, I love you. Dress me. I pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand for our hymn of response this morning? Hymn number 224. We'll sing stanzas one, three, and four. There is a fountain.
even as we were singing that song, I, I was thinking to myself how often um, Satan will still come into my heart and my mind and speak a word that says, you know, you're pretty guilty. And I think what we need to be able to say in those moments, whenever we feel that sense of guilt, is forgiven and forgotten. I abide in Christ. Go forgiven of your sin as it is cast as far as the east is from the west and forgotten through the gift of Christ. Amen.